chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does this young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go into a field and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her, even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. 
The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, even he said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts today. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who's called to us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would sweeten this word in our hearts and in our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. Praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, we're in a short series on the book of Ruth. Um, I've never preached through Ruth before. It's a a challenge, believe it or not, to preach on a short story like this. Uh, Part of the problem is, how much do you take for one text? And there are four main units, and this is one of them, but there are just so many interesting nuggets in a text like this that it would be great to take it like about three verses at a time and look at it in detail. But it's a story, and stories tend to to be told in larger blocks, and so we're going to look at this whole chapter, uh, and that means that we're going to have to leave a lot of the good candy on the shelf perhaps for another time. The whole book of Ruth is about going from emptiness to fullness. In the beginning, Naomi is emptied, in particular of two things, grain and males, which means she's emptied of everything in her cultural context. She's destitute. And the story is about how God takes her from that emptiness and fills her up again. The book of Ruth is addressing what we experience in life in all sorts of different ways, different ways in which we experience loss, in which our lives are emptied, emptied of a relationship, emptied of finance, uh, emptied emotionally, emptied spiritually, and how God goes to work in a variety of ways to fill our lives back up again. The first five verses really focus on how Naomi experienced loss And then the rest of that chapter, which we looked at last week, was all about that key word, return. Remember how many times that word, return, was repeated? It was about Naomi beginning to return from that emptiness to fullness, beginning to return from an estranged relationship to God uh, to a full relationship. Well, our text is chapter 2, 1 to 23, and uh, just like last week, In the same way, remember, Hebrew mothers taught their kids to repeat their vocabulary so that people would get the main point. There's a word that is repeated in this text 12 times. Now, if you're reading a text like the New American Standard or the NASB, 
You probably saw that a little bit more clearly than the text that I read, which is the NIV. Because one of the goals of the NIV is to communicate the truth of the Bible the way we speak it in English today. And our English teachers, remember, did not teach us to repeat our vocabulary. Our English teachers taught us to vary our vocabulary so that what we write isn't boring. And so the NIV is going to use like three different terms for this one term in Hebrew. So it's better English, but in being better English, it's losing a little bit of the flavor of the text. Just remember the old Italian expression, the translator is a traitor. That often you're going to be adding a little bit or taking a little bit from uh, when you're in translation. That word is typically translated glean. Glean means gather. When you're gleaning, you're gathering. Uh, Let's just take a quick run through the text. Uh, Verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go and pick up. NASB, ESV, you probably have the word glean. Pick up. Uh, So at the end of verse uh, 3, it says she began to glean behind the harvesters. Verse 7, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves. Verse 8, don't go and glean in another field. Uh, Verse 15, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her glean. Verse 60, leave them for her to pick up, same word. Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, same word. And then she carried it back to her mother-in-law and said how much she had gathered. Verse 19, where did you glean today? Verse 23, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests. Remember back in uh, the first chapter where it said they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest? And that was a note of hope because barley's the first grain that is harvested. Wheat's the last grain that is harvested. So her staying to harvest through barley and wheat means she's there for the entire harvest period. But look at all those gleans, all those gatherings. If this text is about anything, it's about gathering. The the author wants to focus our attention on the main point by using that Hebrew word that we could translate gather. So obviously this text is about gathering. Notice a pair pair of words that occur in verse 14 and verse 18. If you go back to verse 14... Uh, right near the gleaning, it says in the second half of verse 14, when Ruth sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Or we could translate that something like, she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Notice that pair satisfied with some left over. Then go to verse 18. Ruth also brought out and gave Naomi 
what she had left over after she had been satisfied. That spells hope. Naomi is experiencing, uh, Ruth is experiencing hope that is eventually going to get transferred over to Naomi. So what's this text about? It's about gathering enough and then some. Hope. This text is about how Ruth is gathering hope. And one of the things that we need when we're experiencing, by God's grace, a filling up of the empty is that we have to have hope. We have, and by hope, I simply mean this. No super technical definition. Hope is simply the idea that tomorrow is going to be better than today. That's all I mean by hope, in one way or another. And everybody needs hope, especially when we've been emptied. You have to have hope to move forward. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us, in essence, that the whole Old Testament was given to us so that we could have hope. Paul says in Romans 14 that everything that was written in the past was written to encourage us so that through the the encouragement of the Old Testament, we might have hope. Gathering hope. Let's just look at four ideas in this text about gathering hope. What does it mean to gather up hope when we have experienced loss And when we are trying to return and experience fullness. Four things from this text. Hope and action. They go together. If you don't hope, you can't take action. You won't take the next step if you don't hope that that next step is going to improve your situation in one way or another. On the other hand, when you take action, what does it do? It fosters hope. There's kind of a cycle relationship between hope and action. And as we go to the beginning of the story, verse 2, notice how Ruth is taking initiative. In chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth the Moabite. Watch for that as you read through the book. The not absolutely every time, but the vast majority of the time, her name is not Ruth. Her name is Ruth the Moabite. The author does not want you to lose track of who this Ruth is and just think that she's any Ruth. She's Ruth the Moabite. She's Ruth the outsider. She's the one who has left family, left everything she knew. Uh, as, the, as the narrator tells us, she's the one who's come to a place where she knows nobody. Why? Because she's true to her name. She is friendship. She is that woman who's going to stick to Naomi closer than a sister. This Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. She didn't sit back. She didn't wait for her mother-in-law to tell her, you know, kind of hungry. I think it'd be a good idea if you went out because Naomi was too old to do that. Notice how Ruth is taking the initiative, hope and action. She has some hope from the end of the last chapter because they came at the beginning of the barley harvest and she's going to take that little bit of hope that she has 
and with initiative, she's going to take action. She's going to take the next step. And so what does she do in verse 3? She went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. It was a small step. It was a scary step, but she took the next step. Uh, I've lost track of the book. I don't know the name of it. But it was the book that Elizabeth Elliot wrote uh, after Jim Elliot had been martyred. And in that book, she talks about the fact that uh, there was a point in her life where the only thing she could do was take the next step. She didn't know what the next next step was going to be or where it was going to lead. The only thing she could do is see what the very simplest next thing to do was. And guess what she did? She did that. She just took the next step. And when we experience loss, we often experience a disorientation. And we don't always see very clearly. And God understands that. And so don't be surprised when you're on this path back and God is starting to fill you up. Don't be surprised if you don't see the end from the beginning. It's often the case that the only thing you can see is what is right in front of you to do at that particular moment. And one of the keys to building on the hope that you have and moving forward is simply to take that step. Now, that was a scary step to take for any young woman in Israel. You saw hints of that, didn't you? Boaz said, stay with me, and I've warned my men not to do anything unseemly toward you? And Naomi says to Ruth, good idea for you to go to that guy's field because if you go to some other guy's field, harm might come to you. The text isn't explicit. It doesn't go into any detail. But it tells us that for any Israelite woman, what Ruth was doing was dangerous. And she did not have the social protection of being an insider. She was an outsider, which made her extremely vulnerable. And yet, because she had hope, because she was true to her name, that friend that is going to stick to Naomi no matter what, she did the scary thing and she took the next step. And especially when we're coming out of a circumstance of loss, sometimes we feel paralyzed, don't we? We just don't want to move forward. But one of the things that we have to do is take that little bit of hope that we have. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And we've got to put it into practice. We've got to take action. We've got to take the initiative. We've got to do the next thing. And so hope and action go together. As God's filling us up, He expects us not to be passive in that process. He expects us to take action. Well, the second combination is hope and favor. Uh, I don't know why. This kind of reminds me of that old song, I'll get by with, with a little help from my friends. When we experience loss, we often want to isolate ourselves. Uh, It's natural for us not to want to get engaged with other people. Uh, But to withdraw, it's just often more comfortable. But the fact of the matter is, for us to move forward, for God to, to continue that filling process, we just can't walk that path alone. 
We need to get by with a little help from our friends. Hope and favor. Go back to verse 2. There's an expression, uh, in whose eyes I find favor. To find favor in someone's eyes is a very Hebraic expression. And that expression occurs three times in our text. Notice in verse 2, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Ruth knew that she could not pull this off of, of being the agent of filling up Naomi all by herself. She knew that if she didn't find favor in somebody else's eyes, nothing was going to happen. She needed someone to smile at her. She needed someone to come alongside her and favor her. And that's what she finds in, uh, in Boaz. Uh, notice that it, it, uh, it goes on in uh, verse 10 to talk about how she was amazed at the favor she experienced. This is after Boaz says to her, you know, if you're thirsty... Uh, go get a drink from any of the water jars that the men have filled. He's like rolling out the red carpet for her. At this, she bowed with her face to the ground. This is actually a word in Hebrew that is used for the worship of God. Uh, this is, uh, you, you might think of a, of a Muslim uh, on his knees at a time of prayer with his forehead on the ground. That's what this, verse, this verb refers to to prostrate oneself uh, here, not because she's worshiping Boaz, but because she is just awestruck at the, at the favor that she has been shown by him. So she bows down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor? See, she starts by saying, I'm going to run the risk, I'm going to take the next step, but I know that for this to be successful, I've got to find favor in somebody's eyes, and wouldn't you know it, she finds favor in the eyes of Boaz, and she's, she is, she's humbled. She's humbled that somebody would, what's the text say, would notice her, and she underscores it, notice me, and I'm a foreigner. I might understand if you noticed a, a young Israelite woman, but you've, you've noticed me, and you've favored me. It would be favor to an Israelite woman. It's like double favor to me. See, she, she has no claim on any of this that she's experiencing. She's not coming at this from a stance of arrogance, but humble dependence. And that, um, that, that, that expression, find favor, occurs again in verse 13, and it, it brings us right back to where we were in verse 2. Notice it says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Now, ESV and ASB may be saying something like, I have found favor in the past. Uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure why they do that. It's a different kind of verb, and it's a verb that uh, adequately is translated in English. See, may I continue to find favor. She starts by saying to Naomi, I'm going to take the next step. It's a risky step, and I know that I, I, have, I can't do it alone. I've got to 
have somebody smile on me. I've got to have the favor of somebody. And then she experiences that favor, but she knows that that one-time act of favor is not going to be enough. So she says, may I continue to experience favor from you? May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord? Notice again her humility. She understands the social hierarchy. And in that social hierarchy, Boaz is the Lord and she is the servant. Uh, Notice she says, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So here's Boaz and here are all of Boaz's servants and here's Ruth. Ruth realizes that she doesn't even have the standing of a servant in this situation. What are these three three occurrences of this, may I find favor uh, in someone's eyes? I have found favor in your eyes. May I continue to find favor? What are they pointing us to? They're simply pointing us to the fact that we've got to get by with a little help from our friends. We can't experience this move from emptiness to fullness all by ourselves. And the challenge is, as I've mentioned, that's often risky for us because what we want to do when we've experienced loss uh, more than anything else is to withdraw. And the worst thing that we can do is to withdraw. We need the favor of other people to help us along the way. But keep in mind, not only when you experience loss and are on that path to being filled up, do you need favor, but there are other people all around you who need your favor. There are people who are praying in the morning, God, in my emptiness as I'm trying to experience more of your fullness as I have some hope and I want to build on that hope and take action, Wouldn't you send somebody into my life today in whose eyes I can find favor? And maybe that's you. Maybe one thing that we can pray is not only may I find favor in someone's eyes, but Lord, open my eyes to show me that person or those people that I can favor. See, sometimes... this story is so rich, you can look at it through so many different lenses. You can, you can kind of put yourself in Naomi's shoes, but you can also put yourself in Boaz's shoes. Because remember, Ruth is the heroine and Boaz is the he- hero, and they're both going to be the vehicles, the agents that God uses to, to fill up Naomi, uh, whose story this is. And so when you're feeling like Ruth, Realize that you've got to take action. You've got to do the next thing. Run that risk. But also realize that you can't run it alone. You need the favor of other people around you. And if you're in the full position, just know that there are people who are empty in one way or another all around you. I'll bet within 15 feet of each one of you, there's somebody who is empty in some way and could use your favor. And it's just a wonderful thing that God has done for us in putting us into the body of Christ. As he puts us into the body of Christ, he provides for us everything we need. And did you notice that that note that uh, twice, that Ruth had enough to be satisfied 
And then she had leftovers. See, however empty you are in whatever way you feel that empty this this morning, God has enough to satisfy you. But he has more than that for you. He has enough so that you have some leftover so that you can share that leftover with whoever your Naomi is. It's just the way God works. So first of all, we see hope and action. Then we see hope and favor. Now here's one that you've never thought you were going to hear from in a Reformed and Presbyterian pulpit. Hope and luck. Now let me just ask you, how many of you have ever heard a Reformed or Presbyterian preacher talk about luck, except in a way to say, we don't believe in luck? Hope and luck. Um, Look at, um, look at, where did it go? My my note here says uh, verse 3, but that that can't possibly be right. Um, here, Here we go. Oh, no, no, no. It, it is right. Uh, verse 3, she went out and entered a field. You should, you should trust your notes. That's the moral of this story. She went, out and in, she went out, entered a field, and began to uh, glean behind the harvesters. Now, the, um, the NIV says, as it turned out. The ESV says, she happened. There's a Jewish kind of NIV called the TNK, and here's how it translates it. As luck would have it. As luck would have it. You see, we often have to view things from two different perspectives. Uh, Think about the, the, I don't know what they are, Powerball, Megaball, right? That's, those are random. The way we know they're random is if they weren't random, somebody would have figured out the mechanism and would win every time. The reason why somebody doesn't win the lottery every time is because it's random, right? But I thought... Glenn let us in a reading today that said that God controls everything that happens. Is that true? If it is, then what does God control? He controls the lottery numbers that come out week by week. So are they random or are they determined? See, they are From one perspective, from a human point of view, as we with our finite minds are looking at it, it's it's random. But from a divine point of view, it's not random, it's determined. And uh, both of those are valid perspectives. It's kind of like if I said to you, what is this, what would you say to me? Bullet. And I'd say, no, it's not a bullet and it's paper. So which is it? Is it a bulletin or is it paper? It's both. Bulletin is answering the question, what's its purpose? Paper is answering the question, what's it made out of? 
All I'm saying is that from that there are often two different there are things that just from our limited point of view, they sure just look like wasn't that a lucky what's the other word we don't use? Coincidence. All coincidence means is two things coincide. Wasn't that a lucky coincidence? Notice how the text emphasizes that. Uh, Verse 4, NIV says, just then. There's this wonderful little uh, particle in Hebrew, hine. Everybody say hine. It's a wonderful little particle. It does a number of things, but one of the main things hine does is it introduces something that is a surprise. Some kind of surprise. Remember when Joseph was having these dreams and um, uh, there were... There were what? And the word hine occurs throughout this, the, the, the story. There were seven skinny cows. And surprise, what did they do? They ate the seven fat cows. There were seven skinny heads of grain. And surprise, what did they do? They ate the fat ones. And then here's how the story ends. Surprise, it was just a dream. It was just a dream. So we could translate very well verse 4 by saying, surprise. Guess who just happened coincidentally to arrive from Bethlehem? Boaz. As luck would have it, she just turned, it just, just happened that she came into the field of Boaz. This is the language of the Hebrew text. It wants us to It wants us to feel the marvel that Ruth felt. Serendipity. It just seemed so serendipitous. She could have ended up in anybody's field, but she didn't. She ended up in the field of Boaz. Remember all the names we looked at? Bo, in him, Oz, strength. Strength is in him. She just happened to end up. That's like a little calmer, right? A little tamer. ESV, NIV, she just happened to end up in the fields of Boaz. Uh, So if if we were going to be really bold and use the word luck in our translation, as luck would have it, we probably would want to put it in quotation marks, right? As luck would have it. Because we know, as Reformed and Presbyterian types, that that human perspective is only what? It's only one perspective. It's not the whole. But the the Hebrew text does want us to feel the wonder, feel the marvel at the coinciding of Ruth going out to take the next step and just happening to coincidentally, by luck, end up in the very best possible field. The text wants us to feel that. Because it wants to increase our hope. It wants us to open our eyes to what God can do. To not have God in a box where we're anticipating that if God's going to fill me, then it's got to be, first he's got to do A, then he's got to do B, then he's got to do C, and then D, and finally I'll be filled. We've got to be open to the fact that God can do things in a very, what's the S word? God can do things in a very surprising way. 
And that, that, the text isn't making a theological statement on, on uh, luck and this sort of thing. It just wants us to feel how surprising God can be. Yes, even the God of Reformed Christians can be a very surprising God in how he shows up. And he sure surprised Ruth. And I hope that you'll be open to the, surprised, the surprising ways that God can fill you. One more thing, and it really brings a balance to this point on hope and luck. It's, it's hope and kindness. Uh, look at verse 20. In, uh, in verse 20, right near the end, um, as Ruth and Naomi are talking about how Ruth found favor in the eyes of this guy named Boaz, uh, Naomi said, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Believe it or not, scholars debate, uh, they debate a lot of things. They debate who the he is. Is the he God? The Lord bless him. The Lord has not stopped showing kindness. Or is it Boaz? The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. Boaz has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Because she goes on to say, that man is our close relative. I think it's the latter and not the former, but we'll see in a moment that it's, it's really a moot point. This word kindness is that word chesed that we've talked about before. It's covenant loyalty. Boaz is a... In him is strength. He's a man of character. And as we're going to see, he's going to carry out his covenant obligations toward Naomi, even if it cost him. Whereas we're going to meet another guy called Mr. No Name. He has no name because he has no character. And he's willing to carry out his covenantal responsibilities as long as it doesn't cost him anything. But as soon as he sees the cost, he backs off. But Boaz steps in, and we're, reading, we're rooting for Ruth and Boaz anyhow, so we're happy uh, about that. Human kindness, covenant loyalty. You see, from, from, one, per, from one perspective, what Ruth was experiencing was just the kindness of a godly man named Ruth that saw a young woman in her need and was willing to do what he could to favor her, to be an agent of filling into her empty life. But notice that this kindness, this human kindness, has divine origin. Naomi starts by saying, the Lord bless him. Why would she say, the Lord bless him? Because she realizes, you see, that ultimately behind the human action is divine activity. Behind the seeming luck is the over, over all superintending providence of God, whereby God is at work in all things for the good of his people, as we have read from the Westminster Standards uh, today. So you see, is this kindness human or is it divine? It's both. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, remember when um, Naomi was trying to persuade her daughters-in-law to go back? She said, may the Lord show you, and there's our word, may the Lord show you kindness. 
She prayed that and had no idea that God was in fact going to answer that prayer through a guy named Boaz. So she prays, may the Lord show you kindness. And all of a sudden, she's now praying again and saying, wow, bless the Lord because he has shown you kindness through the very unexpected. From one perspective, unexpected, seemingly coincidental, looks very serendipitous, but God had it planned all along in answer to the prayer of Naomi that Ruth might experience kindness. The Lord is showing kindness. The Lord is showing kindness through Boaz. So from one perspective, it's divine. From another perspective, it's human. And what we want to do is try to embrace the fullness of God's word and not part of it so that we live uh, in a world where we're expecting the divine to come into our lives. And the way the divine often comes into our lives is through the human beings that are sitting right beside us. It's kind of like the New Testament saying, how can you love God whom you haven't seen if you're not loving your neighbor whom you see every day. Love for God is expressed through love for neighbor. And and divine kindness comes through the simplest acts of kindness in our lives through other people. Well, I want to uh, conclude just by reading a text of Scripture. It's a well-known text from Lamentations chapter 3, but I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation which is not a well-known translation, but it captures the beauty of the poem uh, so well and uses, uses uh, some English that just captures the essence of where we are in the book of Ruth at this time. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve my loss. Yet, I still dare to hope. When I remember this, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your uh, profound understanding of who we are in various stations in life. And thank you for how gently you deal with us in moving us from emptiness to fullness. Thank you for your covenant loyalty, your chesed, which is new and fresh to us every day. And because of this, we can have hope. And I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope as we trust in you so that we might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may that hope enable us to take whatever the next step is in our lives and may we see your serendipitous and surprising uh, loyalty and grace 
and favor in our lives. And Father, open our eyes that we might be able to see the roots that are around us and that we might take from the fullness that you have given us and we might bless them with it. So may we be channels of your unfailing love even as we need to be recipients of that unfailing love. And we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus who reigns together with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's respond.